Politico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Todd Wicks and I'm Juliana Daly. The Bloomington Plan Commission is voicing initial support for a large mixed-use development at Pete Ellis Drive in Longview. The site plan calls for a single four-story building housing 360 bedrooms. The complex will also offer 19,000 square feet of commercial space. Though the units will be smaller, studios, one and two bedrooms, developer Tyler Curry says it's not a student complex. Last week, he told the plan commission his target market market is young professionals associated with the Indiana University Medical Complex under development on the bypass. Some of the benefits include the building having an area for local artwork to be displayed work that is commissioned and or supported by an endowment of which we are initiating. There will be a music room to support those that don't have a place to play and or practice. The site will have connectivity to the surrounding area. In addition, there's a promenade and this designated area to have gardens that will allow our tenants to grow their own vegetables and flowers. A public space for concerts and public gatherings is also planned for one corner of the lot. To accommodate the creative design, Curry is requesting the lot be rezoned from its current commercial limited designation to planned unit development. Under commercial zoning, the project could not be one building, but would have to be broken up, which the developer wants to avoid. The Bloomington Environmental Commission requested the developer include more green space in the design and native species in its landscaping. Plan Commission member Jillian Kinsey also voiced environmental and size concerns. She said she'd like to see more, quote, environmental responsiveness. Wow, this is just a mass of concrete in that whole area, so it's all impervious surface in that whole area pretty seriously, so I'd like to see some greater consideration for the environmental concerns and some options um, for being a lot more specific about the cisterns or the um, semi-permeable pavers that could be used on some of the sidewalk areas. Many plan commission members said, on the whole, there is a lot to like about the project. Commission President Joe Hoffman said he was fine with its mass scale and green space, but he asked the developer to factor in the city's new 7th Street Greenway project. 7th Street, all the way from the west side of town, across the bypass is the east-west B-line. That feeds directly along this site. And so it isn't just that 7th and Longview is a bike path, it's that it's the new B-line. And, and I think as this 
project, which I'm very excited about, moves forward, I think we need to think about design issues to make that a positive for this site and not to, and not to impede it or in, or in any way uh, interfere with that. Um, as, as the city builds out that east-west beeline trail, there's going to be a steady stream of bicycles coming around the curve on 7th down to Longview. We've got a side path already there, so it doesn't have to be built. It's already there. Um, but we, don't, we want to make sure that we be careful about the, the parking crossing. That's going to have to be designed in a way that is very clear to drivers, both going in <coughs> and coming out, that there are going to be bicycles flying by there. Scanlon said city planning staff will continue to work with Curry's team on design and green space issues. The plan commission will hear the proposal again in December. A new report says Indiana's tourism and recreation industry will face tougher seasons as climate change worsens across the state. A report on Monday by Purdue University's Climate Change Resource Center is the latest analysis of how climate change will impact Indiana. The report says summer and winter seasons are estimated to change their timing by as much as a month due to global warming. The report says the state's tourism industry could suffer as a result of the seasonal shifts which are estimated to arrive by approximately 2050. Indiana's spring and fall temperatures are also expected to warm by 4 to 6 degrees according to the report. Climate Change Resource Center report also says the state's annual rainfall will increase, bringing more precipitation to the state throughout the year. The report is available online at Purdue University's website. Forest Supervisor Michael Chavez spoke at the October 25th Friends of Lake Monroe meeting held at the Monroe County Public Library. Chavez was there to answer questions about the Hoosier National Forest Management Plan. The management plan calls for 4,000 acres of timber harvest in the Lake Monroe watershed. The plan also proposes more than 400 acres of clear-cutting. The Friends of Lake Monroe express concern with runoff from cut timber areas into the reservoir. Comments and questions at the October 25th meeting emphasize protecting Lake Monroe, especially as a drinking water source. Friends also voiced concerns about the risk of further water quality degradation in both Lake Monroe and the South Fork of Salt Creek. The Hoosier National Forest Harvest Project is in the early stages of design process. It may be 12 months before a final decision is made. New test results show that Franklin, Indiana's groundwater and sewer vapors contain high levels of the cancer-causing chemicals trichloroethylene and tetrachloroethylene. The levels exceed the safe limits set by the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. Both chemicals appear in household cleaners. High concentrations can harm human health, according to the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The Environmental Protection Agency is evaluating the site where an electronics manufacturer, Amphenol, formerly operated. They want to determine if the amphenol site is the source of the toxic chemicals. The company performing the testing, Enviroforensics, says the pollution at the Franklin site wasn't confined there and that the site hasn't been cleaned up properly. The EPA says remediation methods applied at the site in the 1990s are no longer considered effective. The EPA is expanding its testing area near the amphenol site. 
It has also been installing air filtering systems in some area homes. A U.S. district judge has ordered the Trump administration to stop issuing permits for offshore fracking in federal waters off of California. The judge concluded that the federal government violated the Endangered Species Act and Coastal Zone Management Act when it allowed fracking in leased federal waters. The judge ruled that the federal government has to comply with these laws before it can frack. The court order is the result of three lawsuits challenging federal approval and environmental review of Pacific Ocean fracking. At least 10 chemicals used in offshore fracking could kill or harm marine mammals and fish. The California Council on Science and Technology has identified common fracking chemicals to be among the most toxic to marine animals. Earlier, WFHB reported that a carbon tax was on the ballot in Washington state. The oil industry spent a record $30 million campaigning against the carbon tax. Green groups, climate activists, and several billionaires invested $15 million campaigning for the proposition. The measure failed to pass. The yes vote was 44%. This is the second time a carbon tax proposal was defeated in Washington state. On November 8th, a U.S. district judge stopped construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. The judge's ruling prevents construction activities until the Keystone XL Pipeline Company complies with several environmental laws. The judge also ruled that the presidential permit given for the pipeline violated several laws, including the Environmental Policy Act, the Endangered Species Act, and the Administrative Procedure Act. In March of last year, the Trump administration issued a permit allowing construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. The Obama administration had previously stopped the fossil fuel project. A new study from France found that a greater frequency of organic food consumption was linked to a decreased risk of cancer. The study, published recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association's Internal Medicine, covered 69,000 French adults. It found that a diet based on organic food is less likely to contain pesticide residues, some of which are known to cause cancer. High organic food scores were associated with low overall risk of cancer. For WFHB, I'm Todd Wicks. And I'm Juliana Daly. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired or if you have ideas for future stories. Please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. And now it's Get Out and Hike, showcasing the wonderful wild areas of southern Indiana and beyond. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. My name is Curtis Smith. I'm a a resident here in Bloomington. My wife and I have lived here for five years. The Karst Farm Trail, it runs right by our house. We live over on West Side, Bloomington, and so we like to just jump on that. It's a really nice flat trail. It's paved all the way. It's great for walking, biking. It's wheelchair accessible too. And we have twin boys and they're three and a half and they love to ride these little balance bikes and they've grown up on the trail. We we went out with them on the trail before they could walk in their stroller. And then when they got on the little tricycles there on the trail, 
and then now they're on these little balance bikes and we're, we're taking the trail. Yeah. And you feel like it's a pretty safe trail too, maybe for elderly or for moms with kids. We, we've always done it during the day. I'm mm -hmm. not sure what the lighting situation is at night. It's really open, the trail. I mean, there's open fields on either side. Part of it, you're going by houses. You do get out into a rural area like as you go between kind of the edge of Bloomington and out towards the uh, Cars Farm, it's really well maintained. If you go out all the way to Cars Farm, there's parking there, and then you could walk back on the trail. You could take the trail back toward Bloomington, then back to your car. There's also parking at you know, the Ivy Tech parking lot, and you could walk half a block or a block to it. And you can take it from where it intersects with Third. It's like Profile Parkway kind of in Third or Whitehall. From right around there, you can go down a block and then you can jump on the on the trail just right there on the on the south side of Third. And you could head out towards towards Cars Farm and you can take it all the way to the splash pad we've gone one summer. It's quite a walk. It's a few miles if you go all the way out to the park, but you can go all the way out to the park on the trail and back. And you can go the other direction on it. You can go north and you can go all the way up by the Y. So it's just a great, easy walk. There are some little hills here and there, but it's pretty tame. Up next, part two of correspondent Norm Holy's conversation with mammologist Brad Westrich about nocturnal animals. Today, they discuss the fascinating but often elusive flying squirrel. Westrich is the non-game mammals expert at the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. I'd like to switch to the flying squirrels since you mentioned them. Mm -hmm. Are the flying squirrels in this region the southern flying squirrel or the northern the flying squirrels in this region would be the southern flying squirrel. Uh, although up in northern Indiana, you may have pockets of the northern flying squirrel uh, here and there. Uh, the southern flying squirrel just happens to be a better resource gatherer than the northern species. Uh, so they can typically outcompete the northern species wherever uh, they overlap. Um, the southern flying squirrels, it's, it's relatively small. They're on the order of six to nine inches long. Uh, the northern flying squirrel uh, can be a little bit larger, up to 13 inches long, and significantly heavier than the southern flying squirrel as well. So the northern would require a lot more resources for one individual, and you can have multiple southern flying squirrels harvesting all those resources before the northern one could get to them. So typically in Indiana, you'll find a southern flying squirrel and you can tell the difference between the two, not only by size, but also the southern flying squirrel has a very creamy white-colored uh, fur on their belly and under their chin, whereas the northern flying squirrel would have more of a grayish white on that underside. And these animals are, are fascinating. I've had the opportunity to, to hold them while I was doing some bat trapping, since they are nocturnal, and while I was out there mist netting for bats. And a mist net is a, a very, very fine net that you'd put up, almost like if you imagine a, uh, a tennis net that would be across a tennis court, but on the order of a uh, fishing line instead of the, the mesh that you'd have on a tennis net. So it's extremely fine, and that's how we catch bats. And so I was out catching bats one day, and uh, almost every time we went to the net, we had a flying squirrel that had also gotten in the net along with these bats. So they're utilizing these same open forest environments to glide between trees, and, and they're just a, a beautiful animal. They have extremely large eyes to take in as much light as they can. 
so they can see where they're gliding to, and they can also hunt for various uh, plant species, uh, nuts, as I mentioned, fungus, as well as other animals, such as uh, nestling birds, other small mammals like mice. So they have large eyes, they have large ears for listening. It's been documented that they communicate. They're very social. So they'll communicate to other flying squirrels if there's a predator in the area. They'll use a series of high-pitched squeals and chattering to talk to each other, and there's even documentation of them being able to communicate ultrasonically, so sort of on the frequency that bats can communicate. They can give alarms to each other that way to indicate, you know, whether there's danger or, or to just communicate whichever social messages they may spread to one another, especially during the mating season. Uh, but these animals are truly amazing that they, they can glide. They're not true flyers like that, but they glide. And to do this, they have this skin membrane, which attaches from their ankles all the way down to their, to their wrists, I should say, so from the wrists to their ankles. And whenever they spread their arms and legs out, this membrane tightens up, and it creates this gliding surface that they can use to fly from one tree to another. And they've been able to document uh, how well they can do this gliding. And for every vertical foot they drop, a flying squirrel can glide for three feet. So if an animal were on top of a 100-foot tree, they could potentially glide the length of a football field to the ground. And they have amazing control while they're flying as well. They have a very long tail, which is flattened from top to bottom, so it's furred and flattened, which gives it a long paddle-like appearance. And using this paddle, they can use it as a brake while they're gliding, so as they're approaching a tree, they don't fly into it really hard, because they can put that tail down to stop a lot of that airflow, and that renders their, their motion essentially at zero uh, kilometers per second, and they're able to grab onto the tree without really slamming into it too hard. They're also able to use that rudder-like tail to just turn it slightly from left to right, and that can control the direction of their glide. So they can avoid most vines and brambles. They can, you know, curve around a tree to land on another one. They've even been documented, uh, you know, performing a complete 180 mid-glide to land on another tree to avoid predation or an object, which is pretty fascinating. What is their diet? So for a squirrel... These guys are surprisingly carnivorous. Most squirrels will typically eat, you know, nuts and plant material, sometimes fungi, and that's what the southern flying squirrel does eat. But they also have been documented eating uh, carrion, so dead animals in the forest, uh, whether it's a dead, you know, bird or another mammal, they'll go ahead and eat that. They've been documented raiding nests of birds and not only eating eggs, but if there's young nestlings, they can eat those too. They also eat insects, so they're uh, pretty strong predators of the wood-boring insects. So you may have some insects that deposit eggs that have larvae that will burrow throughout tree species, which cause a lot of damage to trees, and it's a benefit to the tree to have this flying squirrel around that will then eat the adult version of that larva so that you have fewer of these wood-boring larvae getting throughout the, the forest system and damaging the trees. And one thing I didn't mention earlier is that this species of squirrel is a cavity nester. So typically you can find them uh, creating their homes in abandoned cavities that woodpeckers or other squirrels create. So they live within a tree, and they help protect the tree, essentially, from other wood-boring insects. Uh, they also form nests 
in uh, leaf clusters if there are no available cavities. So they'll uh, go out among the environment, gather a bunch of leaves and twigs, and actually form a very uh, compact and and warm nest that will keep them safe from you know wind, uh, extreme temperature fluctuations, and actually provide a safe habitat for them to raise their uh, very vulnerable young. Now, are they preyed upon by owls? They are preyed upon by owls. Yep, they are even preyed upon by bobcats, as I mentioned, since they're nocturnal. Uh, you can even have uh, foxes and skunks preying on these animals since they do forage on the ground. And like the bobcat, they're very common throughout eastern North America. There's even subspecies of the southern flying squirrel that can be found throughout Mexico. And in those ranges, they're found to be uh, more habitat specialists. So you'll have populations that form a subspecies that live in mountainous areas or populations that form another subspecies that live in a more uh, arid lowland area. But here in uh, Indiana, you typically have this deciduous forest, and you can find southern flying squirrels throughout that area. They're relatively common, and our survey methods, as well as other researchers' methods, have indicated that these animals don't really face a, a large threat at the moment. So things like habitat destruction, things like that, that is a problem for the flying squirrel. But it's not to the point where we're seeing population declines. They're still increasing in population or stable in areas, uh, indicating to us that they are comfortable living around humans so we can cohabitate with these guys. Are there flying squirrels uh, in Bloomington? There are flying squirrels in Bloomington, yes, sir. Yep. Uh, I, have, I have personally caught them uh, in, and I shouldn't say in Bloomington proper, but at least in the Morgan Row State Forest uh, and other neighboring uh, DNR properties around Bloomington. So I do know that they are around here. And hiking through the forest, you know, you see woodpecker cavities up in the trees. You may be looking at the home of a southern flying squirrel. I'd like to thank mm-hmm. you very much for your comments. I've been speaking with Brad Westrich. He's the non-game mammal expert at the DNR. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Please give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And it's time for In Nature, written and recorded by EcoReport contributors, past and present. The wild turkey is native to North America and is an upland game bird that prefers open mature forests with scattered fields and pasture openings. Turkeys feed by foraging on nuts, berries, and seeds. As with most upland game birds, males and females differ quite a bit. An adult male turkey, or tom, is almost 4 feet tall, has a wingspan of 6 feet, and weighs a hefty 16 pounds. Females, or hens, are shorter, 7 pounds lighter, and overall their feathers are duller. Despite their weight, and unlike their domesticated cousins now baking in your oven, wild turkeys are agile flyers. 
In the spring, small groups of courting toms announce their presence to females with a wide range of sounds such as gobbling or clucking or by fanning out their tails. Hens in turn yelp to tell males their location. Females lay a dozen eggs in a shallow dirt depression surrounded by woody vegetation. The newly hatched poults are precocial and leave the nest in less than 24 hours. Turkey eggs and young are subject to predation by medium-sized mammals and hawks while adults are vulnerable to attack from coyotes, bobcats, and humans. By the early 1900s, wild turkeys in North America had dwindled severely to small, isolated populations due to hunting and habitat loss. As a result of habitat management and reintroduction, turkey numbers have rebounded such that there are hunting seasons in all states but Alaska. The wild turkey long has had an important cultural role for many Native American tribes across North America, both for food and for their feathers in tribal rituals. Coming up this week in our listening area, the Sassafras Audubon Society will host the 11th annual Ducks and Donuts event on Saturday, November 17th. It runs from 8 to 11 a.m. at the Stillwater Marsh Overlook, off Indiana 46, east of Bloomington. This is a casual outing open to birders of all skill levels. For more information, email sas at sassafrasaudubon.org. The 11th Annual Greening of the State House will take place on Saturday, November 17th. It will be at the Honeywell Center in Wabash, Indiana from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. The day will include education, advocacy, and networking with a keynote address by Dr. Jeff Reuter. Contact the Hoosier Environmental Council at 317-685-8800 for information and to register. Adopt-A-Highway Cleanup Day is scheduled at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, November 17th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Volunteer to help clean up the stretch of Highway 46 bordering the park. Meet at the Westbrook Shelter. Equipment and supplies will be provided. Wild Care will host an open house on Saturday, November 17th from noon to 5 p.m. at 198 North Hart Street Road in Bloomington. You may take a guided tour of the center and learn how volunteers and interns care for injured and orphaned wildlife. Take a hike with the beaver or frosty full moon at Spring Mill State Park on Friday, November 23rd, beginning at 8.30 p.m. See the world through the eyes of nocturnal creatures. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center and dress for the weather. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, and Sarah Vaughn. Andrew Brown, Kaylin Brower, and Sarah Vaughn edited the script. Jan Walker produced Get Out and Hike. 
Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our interim producer is Jan Walker. Executive producer is West Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Todd Wicks. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.